We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships, and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inalienable and Free. Our program today is called Humanity on Trial, Transforming the Paradigm of Armed Conflict. And I'm very pleased to have with me Don Newsom, our producer, who, who looks after the show, but he's also the owner of this remarkable media outlet called BBS Radio. And I realize that I love my show and everything, but, you, but if you go to BBS Radio, you'll get to, you'll be able to choose from dozens of shows of, of all kinds, but mostly ones that are, deal with empowerment of one, one sort or another. Anyway, Don, I wondered if you might update us a little bit on what's going on in BBS Radio. Wow, well, thank you very much for that fabulous uh, intro. I appreciate it. We love, uh, we love BBS Radio. We truly do. It's, um, it's an adventure every step of the way. We've uh, completed uh, another step of that adventure. All of our government paperwork is done. Um, Doug Newsom, my uh, twin brother, has done the paperwork uh, over the last couple of years. We have finished it. It's exciting because... The all-female company that we we started doing this with um, has actually obtained over 50% of the media companies that are now registered with the government and to do contracts with the government. So they're a powerful company. They know what they're doing. Women wow. always do, you know, and yeah. um, very well, smart. Soon they'll, soon they'll be ruling, ruling over our country, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> And so uh, now that the paperwork's done, they've had a chance to review it, and they say it's stellar. Uh, they say it's some of the finest paperwork they've ever seen uh, submitted, and they say we should be gold and sealed because we're already, in, in some respects, working with the government or government factions and, uh, or people. And so we're, we kind of have a leg up in that respect, and um, I think we're going to start uh, doing our first contracts early next year because again we're done and that's very lucrative it could be extremely lucrative for us um, they guarantee us our first contract our first we've we've even been able to review a few of them and discuss that with these ladies and so we're excited I mean it's we've been at this for over 15 years plus and now we're finally going to start rolling into a more lucrative position uh, with the company, which means ultimately we can actually start paying our hosts. Now, can you imagine a digital broadcasting company oh my God. paying their hosts to broadcast? Now, of course, it's the other way around, and we were the first ones to even do remote digital broadcasting uh, as a network, and so this is going to be quite a paradigm for us. And it'll allow us, with this money, to go to our host and say, look, we want, you need to run these PSAs, run them in your program, we're going to start paying you. And it'll be a whole different ballgame for digital broadcasting, and we hope to unleash it. So we'll see what happens, but it's looking good so far. We're excited. Thank you for asking. It looks like you're bringing back the old days of radio in many different ways. Right. And uh, but you're, you know, with the, the digital side of it and also with the video side of it, uh, particularly. So I'm really I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I 
can't wait for my first paycheck. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> can't wait to hand it to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, today we're going to look at a different paradigm for the use of armed conflict. Right now, humanity is facing gigantic tests, the trial brought on by the egregious and terrible conflict in Syria, the historic infamy of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Both conflicts demonstrate how far humanity has fallen from its essentially divine nature. In our program, keeping these examples in mind, we look at polarized and non-polarized political perspectives. Polarized perspectives can be looked at in various ways, severity versus compassion, soft versus hard, masculine versus fe feminine, yin versus yang, yang etc. Non-polarized perspectives have a little of both aspects, but the of these opposites often produces a new vibrant solution outside of the arena of either of these opposing forces. But let's just talk about, remember the stuff uh, I worked with Don at one point, we were talking about the border problem, keeping borders in, people keeping people inside our border and nobody comes in, or just open borders. Well, both these ideas have very objectionable side effects. Because what if very good people seeking asylum come and mess as they have occasionally, and we can't, we don't help them, we just kick them out as, and or bring them in if they come in and make them prisoners. So we talked about something that is actually done by the European Union, which is to, in certain cases, find another country, find another place for them, but take care of them. So have, you can have a very strong, even militarized border with a wall or whatever you want to do and keep people out. But if they come in for righteous reasons and you can't take them, then you put them somewhere else. So that's a solution that's a little bit different. It's not yin and it's not yang. It's not even a combination. It's going out of the box a little bit. To, to do something that could be wonderful. So that's, uh, that's what we were talking about here. Well, for me, the only measure of ethical compliance is the experience of the divine presence. I've spoken this before, we're talking about a state of awareness, basically of God, of source, of, uh, of, the, of, of your nature within a circumference or a sort of like within an ocean. So you're experiencing yourself as part of something that's really, really big and also is very individual to you because it will help you and guide you uh, as your progression into deeper and deeper forms of communion, but also in your life. Well, I believe that that experience, which not everybody has, but it's worth striving for, I believe. But I also think that Human conscience is a definite reflection of that state of awareness. And compliance with conscience be measured by a de definition of righteousness that conforms to the goal rule, do unto others as you'd have others do unto you, and the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. Notice how both these well-known ethical mandates have two sides, you and the other, you and your neighbor. Now, I think that's very important because if you look at the solutions uh, and the reasons for war, uh, and, and, and kinds of conflict, it's basically because the person doesn't look at either their neighbor properly or themselves. They're both important. And you are, you are supposed to love yourself, because how could you neighbor as yourself if you hated yourself? What's the point? Well, then what actually causes war? If I were to look at various factors, a scarcity of needed or desired resources or assets, a sense of superiority over one's enemy and the subsequent belief that superiority is a suitable moral ground for conquest, the need to protect oneself from aggression, the awareness of superior military assets and firepower to win, the disdain or hatred for another group, the enjoyment of conquest, the proactive protection against possible aggression from another party, the perception that another party is engaged in aggression towards the innocent, internally or externally, all these various causes can be looked at basically as mindsets. These are the mindsets that lead to war. In seeking paradigms for a wide variety of human activities, I've sought to classify relevant activities under a general category called interactivity. For instance, this category and its relevant subcategories could be discussed in the following geopolitical as interactivity in economics, diplomacy, and military. 
The subcategories for interactivity are cooperative, competitive, and predatory. See if you can follow me. Let's look at an economic, uh, economics first, uh, say a policy involving commerce. In competitive commerce, like competitive trade, the idea is there are fair rules governing competition that must be respected, but utilizing these rules, it is okay for the superior competitor to have a great deal of advantage over another, but there is also concern for other players in the marketplace. This kind of category might result in antitrust reg regulations to protect all or some of the players. And, and you know, there isn't just one kind of, uh, you know, competition, cooperative or com competitive. There are gradations of all these things. And you have to look at them and say, are they fair? Is it fair that, that you have, you have a certain kinds of supermarkets like Walmart go into a town and destroy all the small businesses that are, you know, are there. Just so many of them because it, it provides them. And yes, it provides them because their prices are cheap and they're very competitive and they don't take care of their workers. And so you have problems like that. So sometimes in the past, the antitrust was a, was a bigger thing and now it's not so big. Uh, if we look at a trade policy that basically gives free reign to a single or small group of players and creates the relatively relative impossibility to exist in, for, for smaller players, we call that predatory. In, see, in competitive, there are distinct winners and losers, but there are also rules for fair engagement. In predatory, the rules are greatly enhanced legally or in, enfor in enforcements to allow all or most of the marbles given to the predatory players. And we have a lot of that going on. In cooperative trade, the goal is to create equality of opportunity in the marketplace, but also survivability and sustainability. This is a win-win situation with attention to the creation of fair and just rules to contain responsible major and minor players in the marketplace with a sharing of profitability. The idea of free trading is this idea in its formulation, but probably not, not at all in its reality. Hence, trade agreements that so many have claimed to strip our country of our manufacturing base and destroy employment opportunities for so many. So. That's cooperative trade. Diplomacy is similar. If a country wants to create winning scenarios for itself, but respects its competitors' rights and opportunities, that would be competitive diplomacy that can have many objectives. If a country desires to destroy the efficacy or prosperity of another country, colonize it or create puppet governments, then it is predatory. If a country acts to balance its opportunity with the opportunities of another country, then it is cooperative. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love their country like you love your own care about other people care about what happens to them military strategy cannot be isolated from both economic and diplomatic categories following this idea strategy is based attaining a superior position by economic and diplomatic means in a competitive strategy it acknowledges the right of other countries to do so in a predatory strategy we use the military to entirely overcome another country with the goal of control population and our government and utilizing its resources mainly for its own advantage. If military strategy is cooperative, it will seek partners in creating defense strategies not only for the good of itself and its partners, but for the good of all human beings on this planet. The doctrine of mutually assured destruction does not readily fit into this cooperative mode, but neither does it fit into competitive or predatory policies. The end game of this strategy is clearly suicidal and fails below the competitive predator or cooperative subcategories. Yet this policy, directly connected to nuclear weaponry, governs many major diplomatic, military, and even economic strategies. So, you see, you got a situation here that not only do you have those three strategies, military circumstances, but you have a possible endgame of destroying everybody. You can't have marbles on the table if you don't exist and the table doesn't exist in the marble. We're all disintegrated, right? That's not, nothing's left. So, um, so that's a problem. So, is war a military engagement necessary? Given the state of mankind and even presuming true righteousness in the halls of a few nations, I believe it. I believe so. The present use of military force in the world, particularly as mentioned in respect to the doctrine of mutually assured destruction which hangs over every minor real or potential military action, threatens the survival of the human species, 
and is highly toxic, very dangerous, and not far and far afield of any kind of spiritual paradigm. The paradigm we're looking for is one of military acting within the framework of domestic and international law that would basically exist to protect the rights and survival of the citizen in one's own country and elsewhere. Surprise! We have very good frameworks of law to make this happen. Like, for instance, uh, the, the declaration of war, the criteria for it and uh, for congressional oversight and for Congress alone being able to declare war. Very good idea. Not put in of a unitary presidency, but it's not followed. It hasn't been followed, believe it or not, since World War II. The Korean uh, War was like a it was a political action, and all these other wars, well, they were just uh, they were just done, and uh, they some sometimes had a certain kind of congressional thing to declare war. How could you say the Vietnam War wasn't a declared war? Uh, it shouldn't have been a declared war. Well, the the trouble is that the and or enforcement of wars already exist that govern the deployment of military has clearly deteriorated and predatory empire building and new world building globalist scenarios involving the domination of elite over the world population evade existing international relevant domestic law to accomplish their goals. So you have got the declaration, you've got the constitution and the de declaration of war being controlled by Congress, not happening not congressional oversight, as we will discuss, but you also have the United Nations and the Charter of the United Nations clearly states that there are two reasons that you can go to war. You can go to war if somebody attacks you, and you can go to the war, you can go to war if you get the permission of the Security Council to go to war. So you can probably see if you're following this program and other things in your own personal research that What's happening in Syria, it's really questionable. I mean, so we have a humanitarian crisis involving chemical weapons, but did it ever even happen? Did the Syrians actually, did Assad actually use chemical weapons against his own people? There's evidence that maybe he didn't. We went to war before there could be a Security Council meeting. We didn't want to discuss it. We didn't want to have really good investigations about it. So you've got a real problem there and a good reason why you want the Security Council to ratify something like this, because you could have a humanitarian crisis, which is really sort of like a false flag. That's, uh, that's unfortunate. Well, we're going to take a break. I'm going to present an audio excerpt from a book called Boots in Manhattan, which I wrote with a Korean War veteran and career crime fighter, Ray Boylan. And he taught me a lot of things. And I, he taught me a lot about what it's like to be in, in a war. And he was there when the communists actually invaded. This particular book is about his childhood. And his, uh, he was in, in New York gangs in the 1930s. Very interesting experience. Part of a trilogy of books and films called The Foot Soldier. Then we're going to mention our resume service, something I've helped clients with for many years. And then I'm going to play Desperate Games. This is a song with lyrics I wrote and music composed and produced by Edgar Ahrens for the purpose of providing a platform for the, the, this amazing singer and colleague that I, I've worked with for years called Patricia Welch. She, it is the first time we've broadcast this whole song. It's part of the musical we're working on called Hadley's Castle. So we're going to play in sequence B1, C2, and M54. Boots in Manhattan is a coming-of-age novel by Ray Boylan and Johnny Bluestar. It is about a young Tom Boots Raymond who grows up in New York in the 1940s who is a member of a street gang. My friends and I were about to start our own game of stickball when Rabbit Lacey, the head of the Rattlers, came up to us and tried to move in on our game. We were called dwarves, the youngest members of the stupid gang. Hey, Kevin, I need you to get some gloves and some stuff I left at my place. No, this is our game. Hey, are you my good little dwarf or what? You've been calling me a dwarf since I was six. We're not your personal slaves, pal. Hey, what is this? A dwarf rebellion? All right, big guy. We ditched the dwarf thing. We make you guys regular rattlers. No, it's too late. He looked at Jay and me. We looked away. Rabbit was now angry, and he pushed Kevin hard with the palms of his hand. 
Kevin tried to ram him in the stomach, but he stepped aside, throwing Kevin into the curb where he fell to the ground, bleeding profusely at the knee. Still, he managed to get up. My street. Kevin shouted at Rabbit, pointing at him with an angry index finger. Find out more by Googling Boots in Manhattan, a 1940s coming-of-age novel, part one of the novel series The Foot Soldier by Ray Boylan and Johnny Bluestar. Google with the words Boots in Manhattan, Ray Johnny Kindle. That's Boots in Manhattan, Ray Johnny Kindle. This is Johnny Bluestar, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. The resumes we design are carefully thought out, customized with a great deal of consultation with our clients and developed to fit the generic requirements of a company or a specific position. A resume these days is still very important. Let us help you. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com and fill out the contact form. Shadow marks the brazen breeze. I sense you near and slowly freeze. Tempted by your lips and your touch, the cup of you is way too much. I drink from you.
April 14, 2017, following the strike on Syria by the United States, Great Britain and France, Sach Llorente, the permanent representative to the UN from Bolivia, gave a speech to the Security Council, which unfortunately rings true now as it, did to, and as it does today, some about a year later, when the United States is warned of a more powerful attack on Syria if they commit another alleged chemical attack against their own civilians. We've already devoted a number of programs with testimony of both alternative media and witnesses on the ground that question whether these attacks actually happened. We'll now read, I'm going to read Bolivia's permanent represent, representative speech of the United Nations. Um, this is a full speech at the, at the UN Security Council on April 14, 2017, after the USA, UK, and France carried out unilateral strikes against Syria. He states in the speech how this attack on Syria is a threat to the entire international community. The reason I'm re reading it to you, I, there is a video, but it's very hard to hear the words. And I want you to hear every word. He says, thank you very much, Mr. President. My delegation would like to thank the Secretary General for his presence and participation in the meet meeting. Bolivia would like to thank the Russian Federation for having taken the initiative of convening this urgent meeting of the Security Council. Today is a dark day in the history of this council. Three permanent members of this council have taken the decision to breach the charter of the United Nations and take a unilateral action against the sovereignty and territorial integrity of another member state of our organization. Bolivia wishes to clearly and categorically express its condemnation of the use of chemical weapons in, or chemical substances as weapons, as this is unjustifiable and criminal whenever it happens by whomever. Their use is a serious crime against international law, international peace and security. Those responsible for committing such terrible and criminal acts must be identified, investigated, prosecuted and punished in the most rigorous way. Bolivia continues to demand a transparent and impartial investigation to determine who are the culprits. But in addition, that, the topic of this meeting is the fact that three permanent members of the council, as I've said, have used force to breach, in breach of the United Nations Charter. You cannot combat alleged violations of international law by violating international law. Bolivia is surprised by the fact that the permanent members of the council, given they have a responsibility for maintaining international peace and security, have decided to bypass the United Nations when it suits them. They defend multilateralism as it serves them, and then they simply discard it. When it is no longer in their interest, they are no longer attached to multilateralism. Unfortunately, this is not the only case where unilateral act has been used. Let's recall, and we will never tire of recalling it, the events in Iraq of 2003 and in Libya of 2011. <clears throat> Any such action should be authorized by the Security Council in accordance with the UN Charter. Any unilateral action is contrary to international law, contrary to the values and principles of the UN Charter, and unacceptable. Bolivia rejects the threat and use of force. Unilateral action not only responds to the specific interests of those who carry them, but in fact they are and allow me the expression, imperialist measures, it so happens that empires, as we have stated earlier, find themselves superior to the rest of the world. They think they are exceptional, they think they are indispensable, and hence they think they are above the law, above international law. But in fact, the real interest of those who unilaterally use force and violate the United Nations Charter is not to advance democracy or advance freedom or to combat the use of chemical weapons. Their goal is to expand their power and expand their domination. What we have witnessed over the past few hours is an attack against the fact-finding mission of the OPCW, which is an organization that they have for looking at chemical weapons, which hasn't even started their work, that was scheduled to begin today. This unilateral attack is an attack against multilateral organizations such as the OPCW, is an attack against this council and its main duty of maintaining international peace and security. 
is an attack against the UN Charter and it is an attack against the entire international community. I asked the permanent member who used force just a few hours ago how much money they invested in arming and training the armed groups in Syria. Which, na which national resources are they coveting? And with which moral authority will they be able to invoke the United Nations Charter in other situations? Unfortunately, the history of relations of the principles and purposes of the UN Charter is long. We mentioned Libya, Iraq, but there are more recent chapters. It happened with the unilateral decision regarding Jerusalem, another clear of a lack of respect for international law. And to my audience, we've covered that quite a bit. Who are those who sell going on? Who are those who sell weapons to those who bomb civilians in Yemen? Who are those who reject the Paris Climate Change Agreement? Who are those who stepped away from the international migration pact? Who are those who build walls? Well, we believe that it is important to evoke more ancient history. We are suffering the consequences, especially in the Middle East, of actions carried out by certain colonialist powers more than a century ago and of their disdain for international law. The same complete disdain for international law that we're experiencing now in Syria is also something we've seen when, for example, the United Kingdom refuses to return the Falkland Venus Islands sovereignty to Argentina, when the Chagos Archipelago, Archipelago is not resolved, when the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice on this topic is not heeded. In other words, we are talking about a whole range of policies that undermine international peace and security. The permanent representative of the United States says that the United States, her country, is, re is ready, is locked and loaded, she says. Of course, we clearly heard her words with a great deal of concern and a great deal of sadness. We know the United States has aircraft carriers, satellites, intelligent missiles, smart bombs, and a, a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons. We also know they have nothing but scorn for international law. But we have this. We have the principles and purposes of the UN Charter. He picks, up, he picks it up and he shows it. And ultimately, as history has demonstrated many times, these principles will prevail. So this is a lot of concern to me. It's a lot of concern. He said it really well. I'm part of a country that I believe was established with the greatest principles and ideals that you could have. You wouldn't have a United Nations Charter without the Constitution and the Declaration because those follow in its footsteps centuries later. We have a country because of the ideals that we founded it on. Yes, those ideals were violated almost immediately, but the point is they were inspired. So as they, as you wanted, you know, you wanted real suffrage, not just white, you know, white, uh, you know, white property owners and so forth on being able to vote, you expanded that suffrage because the conscience was there. It was implicit in those words, Jefferson, and in the Constitution, and we expanded it. We were doing real good for a while. Well, we've been discussing in previous programs the war in Syria and atrocities that continue in the war of Yemen. Well, we'll let's update some critical information about the war in Syria through an interview with Vanessa V, a reporter on the ground in Syria that was, that was held by Ryan Christian of the Last American Vag Vagabond. That's an alternative outlet that I consider quite responsible and dedicated to creating more informed and enlightened citizens, part of our mission as well. So we're looking at N115, the Humanitarian Corridor. Let, let's, uh, let's begin by talking about the, the current discussion of the demilitarized zone between Erdogan and Putin that was set to begin on October 15th, um, and then how that kind of corresponds with the recent attack that we just saw. Um, I, I have uh, Putin quoted as saying, at the meeting, we discussed in detail this situation in the Idlib government and decided to establish a 15 to 20 kilometer wide militarized zone along the contact, contact line between government troops and the armored opposition by October 15, 2018, and evacuate radical militants, which I think is incredibly important, including Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, so what are your thoughts on this zone first, and we can dive into the recent attacks? 
Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's been the inevitable criticism um, of this diplomatic move um, by Russia um, in coordination with Turkey. And there are fears. There are fears, obviously, that Turkey has consistently been attempting to annex Syrian territory and occupy Syrian territory via its own so-called moderate proxies. Um, and we've seen that, um, you know, in our freeing, we've seen the brutality of, of the Turkish regime um, alongside its proxies. We've seen throughout the Syrian conflict, Turkey's role in supporting and enabling and facilitating and incubating um, some of the, the hardcore militant factions that have attempted to destabilize Syria and, you know, have succeeded to some degree, particularly earlier on. So Turkey's role has, has never been um, a, a beneficial one um, to the Syrian government, to the Syrian army, to its allies or to its people. But I think what, what Russia is playing here is, is uh, a long game. You know, it sees that potentially here it has um, the possibility to away from its NATO allies to a degree and putting it in a position where one it's responsible um, for the armed factions for the militant factions that it specifically supports um, it will also involve um, the the de-weaponization of the more hardcore groups in that area such as you mentioned Nusra Front we know that in the last sort of five days um, a large number of ISIS fighters have actually we believe have come in via Turkey from Iraq and reinforced uh, Haras al-Din, um, the militant groups that are occupying from Jishar al-Shagor to the sort of to the north of Latakia. So, you know, this is an important move by Russia. One, I think, to delay um, what is inevitably going to be a bloodbath in Idlib because of the, the sheer volume of terrorist factions that are there um, and the numbers of civilians that are still there and are trapped. I mean, the, the Russians have opened the humanitarian uh, cor uh, corridor of Abu al-Dur, um, but Jolani has been instructing his armed groups to actually shell this humanitarian corridor to prevent civilians leaving. We're hearing stories of those civilians who have managed to leave that I managed to interview um, of the armed factions demanding upward of $600 for civilians to leave. I mean, you know, this is virtually impossible. So we're seeing a very similar pattern here where uh, Russia and Syria are trying their utmost to evacuate civilian communities. Um, the Western-sponsored Saudi-financed um, and Qatari-financed terrorist factions, extremist factions are preventing them leaving. I mean, this is, you know, this is patterning that we saw in East Aleppo, in, in Homs, in um, Eastern Ghouta, even in the South. So this is not unusual. Um, so uh, the other important thing about this demilitarization zone and, and what suggests that certainly Damascus would be in agreement with this zone is the fact that part of the guarantees is that the north-south um, transit road would be fully opened and under government control. And that would be for the first time, I believe, in the conflict. Um, Turkey is developing trade relations with Jordan. So this benefits Turkey also. So, uh, and, and also Turkey, we shouldn't forget, has this ultimate card that it can play against the EU and it's played this before, that it can control the flow of extremists um, through its territory and into Europe. So that, you know, it, what it's done is given, it's given Turkey the ultimate responsibility for its own armed factions that are operating inside Syria, right? So it has nowhere to go. It is responsible for those factions. It's responsible for the ceasefire. The so-called humanitarian Carter is stated as being attacked by some of the terrorists whose home has been in the Idlib province. Many came here because they were allowed to leave their other places in Syria safely, agreements made with the Syrian government who said, you know, you guys can go somewhere else, we won't kill you, uh, just get out of here. And so they put them in another place. Maybe not a great idea to put them in their own country, but maybe they could put them anywhere else. Whatever the effect of these attacks, even if many do escape from the province, there's a very high chance an attack by Syria and Russia may happen soon. 
in Idlib and elsewhere, where the problem that the U.S. forces are embedded in, in these patches of terrorists sponsored by the United States. And if Russia attacks them, the U.S. might massively invade, as Bolton promised that there were another chemical attack, but then the anti was seemingly any kind of attack in this area. Attack on Syria could easily be an attack on Russia. Look how crowded the skies could be when a Russian plane was shot down by Syrian missiles. Russia part, part blaming the interference of Israeli planes and the accidental downing of the Russian plane is now setting up Syria with a strong air defense. Let's go to N17. Stepping up tensions with Israel. Moscow announced it would equip its longtime ally, the Syrian regime, with new surface-to-air missile systems. During the next two weeks, modern, effective S-300 missile defense systems will be provided to Syria's armed forces. This system enables better defense against airstrikes at a range of more than 200 kilometers, and at the same time it enables more precise hits on air targets. This announcement comes one week after 15 Russian servicemen were killed, their surveillance plane accidentally shot down by the Syrian army. The crash occurred shortly after Israeli jets launched an air raid in Syria. Moscow claims their jets then hid behind the Russian aircraft, causing it to be mistaken for an Israeli plane. Israel has denied this account, but it wasn't enough to convince Russian President Vladimir Putin. His decision to equip the Syrian army has incensed Israel, while the U.S. has deemed it a significant escalation in Syria's seven-year war. We're finding lots of places where they're working against American interests, and we will hold them accountable for so doing. Following the announcement, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned Vladimir Putin against delivering the air defense system adding that Israel would continue to defend its security and its interests. When I think of more advanced paradigms of economic diplomacy and military defense, nothing like this, like these events that we're talking about should exist. First of all, all nations of the world should be intelligent enough to exit out of the weapons of mutual destruction. And the fact that so much money is slushing around building nuclear weapons is a ridiculous testimony to the absurdity of those paradigms of those in power. So planetary cataclysm should be off the table. Secondly, the globalists and empire builders need to retire from the halls of power. Trouble is that the desire for power and domination over, over others is produced by a psychology of separation, where the human psyche is fed by its own selfish and predatory dreams, instead of communing with the divine or at least living in respect of other people's lives and aspirations. To change that psychology would be to augment the chances for personal and collective survival by a thousandfold, perhaps a millionfold. So we've seen now, we've been talking about the, um, the dangers of the, you know, of the Yemen situation, which is beyond belief. So we're going to take a pause now for a few messages. Uh, we're going to play... Uh, I'm going to play two, two, two things, C5 and M56. The first is about the books of Dr. Rodier, and the second is a song by Zave uh, Nathan and Bonnie Blazak. But what happens to someone when they wake up and confront the political reality around us? So please just play C5 and M56. Dr. Hugo Rodier has published four books on health issues covering practically all chronic health problems. You may find them by accessing his website at hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. Gut health is the most academic, while switching off chronic disease is the most patient-oriented with simple recipes to implement his nutritional protocols. Down. 
stuff we're talking about you know we haven't had time to do everything that maybe we wanted to so we can continue this discussion another time about about a new paradigm for war but before we leave i want to go into one other thing and this is uh the effect of war on combatant and it's by the last american vagabond uh ryan christian so let's hear this in N19. Now it's very relevant that these young veterans are those of the, the post 9-11 era, meaning that many of these veterans affected served specifically in Afghanistan, which is now the longest running war in US history or in Iraq. America's post 9-11 wars, Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, have seen a record number of veterans diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome which affects one in five, apparently, Iraq and Afghan war veterans. There's a clear correlation between the increase in PTSD cases and the suicide epidemic among veterans. As the suicide rate among veterans has reached its apparent highest level since those two wars began a decade ago. Very, very, the, the, the correlation there, of course, PTSD directly from those specifically is higher than all the rest. And that is very relevant. The bad things happened there, to put it very, very surface level. Now, suicide notes from young veterans who have chosen to end their lives suggest that certain acts they were ordered to commit by their superiors while they were serving overseas were often to blame for the suicide. And a perfect instance in this article, a suicide note of Daniel Summers, an Iraq war veteran who took his own life at 30 years old stated that his PTSD was largely the result of having been ordered to participate in things including war crimes, crimes against humanity. Somers noted that, quote, though I did not participate willingly and made, and made what I thought was my best effort to stop these events, there are some things that a person simply cannot come back from. That's just heartbreaking to hear. Now, indeed, some of the atrocities that have been conducted by U.S. troops in Iraq include, as we've noted on this show more than once, orders to just slaughter all military-age men, regardless of whether the combatants in a given area, torturing detainees, raping children, which was actually an entire expose even done by me. This is a real story. 
of soldiers being forced to actually rape children in front of their mothers and family members. Now that's hard for some people to hear, but that is a verified story from the Iraq war. Horrifying. Massacring groups of civilians, even sodomizing prisoners with broomsticks. All verifiable stories, by the way, which will be in this article in the show notes. Imagine being forced to do these kind of things and then being told it's for your country. What that does to your mind. Later on in his final letter, Somers questioned the purpose of the war that caused his suffering. He said, quote, and for what? Bush's religious lunacy? Cheney's ever-growing fortune and that of his corporate friends? Is this what we destroy lives for? Beyond the country's leaders at the time, the wars began. Uh, Somers' suicide note also placed blame on U.S. government institutions. He wrote, quote, to force me to do these things and then participate in the ensuing cover-up is more than any government has the right to demand. Then the same government has turned around and abandoned me. They offer no help and actively block the pursuit of gaining outside help via their corrupt agents at the DEA and blame rests with them. That's powerful. Of course, this is one person's note, but understand that you can find you could find unending amounts of things just like this online that they don't want you to see. They don't want you to realize that people come back from these and have a much different picture than they try to paint as they're trying to recruit young children from high school. Pretty alarming. And they realize the suicide rate as they abandon these people is continuing to increase. And of course, the opioid epidemic, which is also discussed in this as they continue to push them on veterans while not allowing them to have cannabis in many cases or any other thing, they're pushing the opioids on them, is increasing this. It's a sad reality. All of these things combining, combining are their efforts. It's pretty sad. And hopefully people can see through this and realize that the wars that we're putting people through are ruining lives, not just overseas, but here. And they're unnecessary. Well, I'm going to uh, play something from Jake Morphonius about, well, what, what are we going to do about all this? Let's see what he has to and what bugs me is that rather than get behind people that are really trying to make a difference, did you guys see uh, what Rand Paul tweeted yesterday? Uh, he said this, quote, it is inexcusable for the United States to continue to fund child soldiers and pedophilia in Afghanistan. I will continue to do everything in my power to put an end to this abhorrent behavior. You know, so you've got somebody like, Rand Paul, a sitting senator who is not just talking, you can look and see what he's actually doing, the legislative effort, trying to build a coalition there in the Senate, trying to get bills passed, trying to do things to make a real difference. But does that get attention? No, you don't hear about that. You hear about whatever the latest thing is that, that Trump, you know, tweeted about or, or who he's mocking or anything else. Do all the QAnon supporters get behind Rand Paul? and his efforts to stop funding of child soldiers and child sex trafficking and stuff like that. No, all they know about Rand Paul is that Donald Trump made fun of the way he looks in a debate. You know, that's Rand Paul. You can't, Rand Paul's nobody. They put their faith in Trump and they tell us to trust the plan. What plan is that? The, the, the plan that presents one false claim after another, after another going on a couple years now telling us nonstop, that in a couple of days, Hillary is going to be rounded up. They're going to arrest Hillary. They're going to get all these deep state people, all these uh, child traffickers. They're rounding them all up. Just watch. It's going to happen. Okay, no, it didn't happen this time, but it's going to happen. I've been listening to this for over a year, and it's still not happening. It, my, my point is, you know, that's good that some people, you know, hope for this. I'm, I'm right there with you. I agree with you. I want to see these people go down. But if you keep holding on to these fantasies of, of these invisible saviors who are going to come along and make everything right, and you wait, and the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into years, we're going to get to the end of the Trump presidency, and what's the excuse going to be then? I am so tired of QAnon people and, and other diehard Trump supporters telling me, Jake, you just got to be patient. No, I don't. No, I don't. Because there are real people trying to make a difference right now. Real people who have names, not QAnon. Real people who have legitimate positions of authority like senators 
who are trying to make a difference, but you don't hear about them. You don't get behind them. You don't get behind someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who was trying to call out the deep state and put an end to what's going on in Syria. You know, these people, regardless of their domestic politics, if they are out there trying to make a difference in a good way, we ought to back them. We ought to support them. But what the reason that doesn't happen is that that would require us to turn our attention away from these salacious, sexy stories that are entertaining and pay attention to boring people like Rand Paul. And he is kind of boring. These mundane actions of people, of men and women who are really trying to make a difference in a positive way, they need our support. We need to be paying attention more to them. And and that requires us to be more intellectually engaged than the average person out there, than the average Republican, the average Democrat. For all the attention that I see people giving to something like QAnon, if, if people would put that kind of attention and that kind of support and, and start buying shirts supporting the real efforts of real people like Rand Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, and, and the others that are really trying to fight the deep state right now. If we would put our efforts behind them, we might actually make a difference. But no, because we've got this LARP that's been co-opted by the intelligence community to keep us, uh, uh, keep our attention on, on uh, you know, invisible saviors. Such ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have to say goodbye now, but uh, tune in. Uh, keep 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 yourself tuned into this station because you're going to hear Sharman's Taming the Tida. Very exciting stuff. And we'll be uh, back next week with Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. We've got a good reason. Singing the blues The ego is dying And that is good news Attachments are losing Their hold on the soul Desires are dying When love's in control Beat is the beat of the blue.